This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Researching Places. Tessa and Mortimer Wheeler. King Arthur and Iran. And the Hexen 2.0 Tarot. totally take you down in God's Forge. No way! My Apocalypse Titan is too powerful for your puny Crystal Phoenix. What you don't know is that my Great House's special ability is to always beat you! Ha ha! Oh, wait. You win. That was seriously fast. Yep, that's because of the simultaneous play in God's Forge. And also because of my Great House's special power. Isn't that from the new expansion for God's Forge? Yep, and you can get yours, too, on Kickstarter on November 8th. God's Forge 2nd Edition, plus two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods... And Twilight of the Great Houses. You are a great mage battling for the last reservoir of the magic element Ethereum. Craft creations and cast spells to defeat your rivals, leaving you as Master of the God's Forge. With quick and fun simultaneous play. Starts on Kickstarter from November 8th. Ends on Kickstarter December 8th. Learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Pavlito's crisps, and the benevolent gaze of Aga Rawiz coming alive tell us we're not in our regular gaming hut. We got the dice, we got the miniatures, but I think, Robin, we may be in an area of the world that I don't know a lot about to begin with, per beloved Patreon backer Elias Helfer's question, if you wanted to set a book and I assume game or novel, in an area of the world that you didn't know a lot about to begin with, how would you approach your research? What are your hacks to quickly getting the basic understanding that allows you to focus on what you really need, Robin? Right. And I'm going to expand this topic slightly for the purpose of the broad listenership to also researching things for game sessions that you want to run. For a scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first question is, how much of this place do you need? Elias's question assumes that you need a lot about this place because mm-hmm. you're going to write a whole book focused on it. The equivalent of that in scenario or running a game is that you're going to have a whole campaign set there. The other option, of course, is that you just very briefly want to touch on this place as one scene among many in some sort of you know globe-hopping campaign, as I've done for the Esoterrorists or other people have done for other things. And for that, the answer is find out how much you need to know to run the scene that you actually need and the rest of it, you just sort of fake it. So on that level, you can kind of get away with Wikipedia plus a few news stories, particularly researching whatever element of it it is. So if you want to have a meeting with an arms dealer, you Google arms dealer and Sarajevo or whatever place, and you're pretty much good to go and you can kind of fake it. But then there's the question of, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time here. You really want a deep treatment of this. So the first of all, the question is, what is your angle? And why have you decided to delve into a place that you're not familiar with? Why, yeah, why, why would you set the book or the, the adventure of the game, whatever it is, in somewhere you don't know? Why, why are you demanding to do a book in Madagascar 
when you have to do all the heavy lifting to get aware of Madagascar when you could have done the same book in a place that you already knew pretty well. Right. And I guess the answers might be you're hired to do it. And someone says Madagascar is a part of our world, our part of our game line. We have a plan for Madagascar go to. Or the other one might be you have one fact about Madagascar that makes it really cool, like that it used to hold pirates from America in the tail end of the 17th century, and they had maybe a little pirate colony there, and you think, oh, that's interesting. But you don't know anything else about Madagascar, especially not if you're setting a modern-day, you know, esoterrorist or even a 30s-set Trail of Cthulhu campaign there or anything. Right. Well, a specific example is Dreamhounds of Paris, where... I had to study Paris, or rather, in that case, made Steve Dempsey write up Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had to study it, too, because that's where the Surrealists were, and I wanted to do a a book on the Surrealists. So there are lots of examples of you have an angle into a place, and you want to discover it. And so here is my next step, then, is to cheat. (laughs) And I ask Ken (laughs) what the baseline books are on whatever the subject is. So it's like, oh, I got a thing in the the 20s. You know, what is the universally recommended thing on America in the 20s. And, you know, not only Ken will answer this question, but you can do a pretty good sort of search at your library on Amazon and kind of get a sense by looking at things and sampling them to see, you know, which ones are regarded as authoritative and which ones that you will find readable and not a a hideous slog. Mm -hmm. And you have the advantage, of course, of you're going to make a bunch of stuff up. So you are less concerned about necessarily the most authoritative factual history as perhaps the most readable fun one is maybe the better one to go with. Yeah, but I'm doing something in the modern world. And again, I have a whole chapter in Knights Black Agents on exactly how to do this. It's the city's chapter. I recommend it. But, you know, the the quickest, dirtiest answer is, as you say, Wikipedia plus usually like a Lonely Planet travel guide. And that gives me a lot of information. It gives me, you know, art museums. It gives me food. It gives me cultural things. It gives me a smattering of history because there's historical monuments. And sometimes there's a little the history of this town box somewhere. And often that will be enough to put my teeth in for, like you say, a a one shot or a single scenario. If I'm going deeper, then, you know, I don't get to ask me. But what I do get to do is check other bibliographies and you know again wikipedia most wikipedia articles have bibliographies and so if you're looking at madagascar and one of the books is madagascar in the 1930s pivot state of the french indian ocean or something you think well there we go that's the book i needed because it's right about my time period other books you need to sort of get general then work down to the specific as rapidly as you can and then find out assuming you liked that book, or even if you didn't, where that book took the specifics you care about. So when I did the looking glass for Saigon, I mean, I knew what I needed was Saigon in 1968, but I didn't know an awful lot about the city of Saigon. As a little hilarious prank on me, it turns out no one's bothered to write anything about what the city of Saigon was like in <laughs> 1968. The other thing is you may, <laughs> if you commit to working on a particular area or place without first doing this initial survey, you may find yourself hosed because Mm -hmm. there are some surprising holes in what is available, let alone readily available. And with Saigon, there was a very terrible encyclopedia of Ho Chi Minh City. There was a better 
but not still, still not great history of Saigon. There were various war memoirs, which I knew would be relevant. And then fortunately, there is the good old interwebs and lots of people, both American expats in Saigon and Vietnam war veterans have put all manner of things up about what they know about Saigon or what they like about Saigon or what they hated about Saigon. And I could pull together enough to fill a, I think fill a pretty good campaign. You could probably run up an adequate uh, Saigon campaign based on looking last 1968 and maybe your hazy memories of the quiet American or something. And you, you do a pretty good job there. And since this question is mostly for you, I will just repeat something that you often say, (laughs) which is another great resource is to look for things that were published at the time that you're focused on. Of course, that limits you to, you know, a certain time frame that you're looking at, right? You're not going to find a whole lot about Madagascar in the 1790s. But if you're, you know, dealing in this century where books are still available, if not in print, you may be able to find things that provide the attitudes of the period and the knowledge of the period of whatever particular area you're dealing with, because back projection from what we know now may not be such a terrible thing, but it's useful and refreshing to get, you know, what was the CIA, what what did they know about Saigon Mm -hmm. and what didn't they know, right? Because often there's sort of a surprising gap between what we know later and what is known at the time. Yeah. The um, other possibility is if you have that one narrow element you you'd have this pirate colony in 1700 well the pirate colony is long gone but you can still focus in on that spot at the tip of madagascar and so you can try and do a super narrow dive into what is going on at that spot right now or what was going on on that spot in the 1930s or whatever and Often you can do that and then they'll say, oh, well, that was during the big bush uprising, of course. And so everyone had to go around with a gun for a bit and you're, oh, a big bush uprising. And you'll learn more and sort of attach it higgledy piggledy like a quilt fashion to your central concept. And again, this is the sort of general, you know, Isaiah Berlin's fox or hedgehog. Do you learn by digging deep into one thing or do you learn by running all over the field? And I, I think both can produce worthwhile results for game research. Certainly I think probably it, you know, the longer you're planning to set the thing there or the bigger, the book is supposed to be the hedgehogier you probably need to be about it just so you don't trip yourself up by, you know, uh, positing something that, that, that would not be true to someone with a, a broad knowledge of Madagascar or wherever the location is. You know, you can't be having them all, you know, speak English when in fact it's a French colony. But if you are just thinking, well, the pirates were American, they probably had English speaking people there. You could get tripped up a bit. A specific tool that I found useful is the keyword search in Google Books, because often if you type in the particular words you're looking for, you know, Madagascar pirates, mm-hmm. you may discover something really great in a book that's about something entirely else that Mm -hmm. doesn't have, it's not indicated in the title that they've got three great pages on the Pirates of Madagascar. There's no indication. It's not mentioned in any of the primary sources. But look, here's this great anecdote that also happens to relate to whatever else the book is actually about, you know, gold mining or the history of radical thought or whatever unusual thing happens to involve three pages of Madagascar pirates. And often it will give you enough of an excerpt of that, that for the purposes of faking it, 
uh, that you can kind of figure out what's going on and, and draw on that material without, you know, purchasing a $60 academic text just to access those two pages and refer to them in a single sentence in your book. And with most nerd trope game projects researching the local magical traditions, the local monster traditions, what, what are their vampires like? What are their ghosts like? There's usually some early 20th, late 19th century anthropologist who wrote a book about it. It's probably wrong, but, but entertainingly it wrong. will certainly give you the basis for a role-playing monstery version of the truth. And then depending on how vital this belief structure is to your story, you know, there will be snotty modern anthropologists saying how wrong they were in academic papers. That requires obviously a more specialized search on JSTOR and other academic resources, but Again, this is how deep do you want to dig your hedgehog? If you've got one book that says ghosts in Madagascar, you know, hate peanuts, why would you bother looking up to find out, well, maybe they don't hate peanuts. You've, you've lost your wonderful, beautiful specificity and you can cover yourself by saying some traditions or yes. one tradition or something These like that. particular ghosts who happen to live exactly where I need them mm -hmm. hated peanuts. Hate peanuts. Uh, another place to look for overview stuff that you might not think of is biographies. And often you will do this anyway, because you are interested not only in a place, but in particular notable people who lived in that place, who you want the players to, to meet. Or Such as a bunch of surrealist or Belle Epoque artists, for example. Exactly. And especially newer biographies often double as social histories. And so they'll provide all sorts of context and background about a place and its social conventions and its mores in a way that maybe even the basic his history text on that doesn't, or they will provide a lot of great specific detail that underlines what it is that you're talking about. And you can spin into anecdotes. So it, it will often give you the very particular usable juicy detail that a uh, somewhat drier overview doesn't. Yeah. I would say along the lines of your Google book search, you know, if you have, if I had one hack, it would be going to the library and finding the thickest book on the topic with the biggest index, and then just go through the index and see what jumps out at you as interesting. And maybe there's an index entry for Templars or ghosts or vampires or gold miners or pirates or whatever. And you can say, that's a gameable thing that rhymes with the game that I'm writing about this topic. Let's see what they say on page 894 or whatever, and you can dig that out. That's a little factoid. And then if that turns out to be the kind of thing you can't imagine leaving out of the game, then you can research that one factoid and you can do that in as much depth again as you as you uh, care to. Well, I think we've, uh, speaking of overviews, I think we've given an overview of how to find overviews. Mm -hmm. and it's time for us to uh, see what view of something else we can find on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. 
clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. The lazy swing of the pickaxes, the sweltering sun, the uh, grid pattern that we're laying out in the dirt, and in this case, the very careful attention that we're paying to uh, geographical strata, tell us that we're once more in the archaeology hut. And this time around, we're at the behest of estimable backer Steve Dempsey, who uh, wants us to look at the dynamic couple of archaeology, Tessa and Mortimer Wheeler. Now, there's a part two... Or, or a little, uh, you know, extra little kicker that Steve wants us to uh, to look at later. But we'll ask about that later because, uh, Ken, you're going to tell us about the wheelers and uh, the many, many things that uh, uh, they and then later just he dug up. Yeah. If we're going to do Steve's kicker justice, we can't go too deep into the many, many things they dug up. But it was many things. Anyway, Mortimer is born in 1890. He's mostly raised in Yorkshire. He's from a middle-class background. He wants to go to college. He gets a master's degree in classics at University College London uh, in 1912, and then decides he wants to be a professional archaeologist. Now, there's barely any such thing for middle-class people in 1912. You have to be rich and then squander your fortune screwing around in foreign climes digging stuff up. Yes, but, there's no funding right. <laughs> except for your own personal wealth. But he but he wants to um, uh, not just go to foreign climes. He wants to dig up Britain. He wants to be an expert in Romano-British archaeology. Much of Britain is old. Yeah, much of Britain is old, and much of it was owned by the Romans for a bit. So that piques his curiosity. While he's at UCL, University College London, he meets a young woman named Tessa. She is born in 1893 in Johannesburg, South Africa, but moves to England. They marry in 1914, which is also when she gets her degree from University College London. Then he goes off to serve in World War I. After the war, which he survives, she following him around until he gets deployed into France, they go to Wales, where he gets a post at the National Museum of Wales in Cardiff and uh, works his way up to being director of the National Museum of Wales. And I don't know if it's at that time that Tessa becomes keeper of archaeology or if she had worked up in her own parallel fashion. I'm sure that she made herself useful and important. Right. And of course, this is a time where it's very difficult to be a woman in any scientific field, even if you are working in tandem with a husband who is overshadowing you. Right. Although uh, this is also the period when our buddy Margaret Murray is out there becoming the first woman Egyptologist or one of the first women Egyptologists. So it is it's bubbling around in the area that no uh, shade on Tessa, though. Um, he then becomes the keeper of the London Museum in 1928. She becomes a lecturer there. They excavate during that period Maiden Castle in Dorset, which is not really a castle. It's a big hill fort. 
and uh, apparently they do a very meticulous job of excavating. He's been sort of doing model excavations at places like St. Albans, the Roman Verulamium, other locations in Wales, one that we will mention right across the river from Wales later on. And they create a new state of the art, like using a grid pattern. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, actually paying attention to the geology and the, the mm-hmm. levels that things are in. And, and, so, and the stuff you dig through on your way. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, of course, later archaeologists, you know, build on that and improve on that. There were actual literal methods aren't used much today, but they are an important step mm-hmm. in the development of all of these techniques from moving beyond, let's find some treasure and take it back to our museum to let's find the context of all of these objects together and see what that actually tells us about the people whose stuff were digging up. Yeah. He then, at the same period, is establishing the Institute of Archaeology to train other archaeologists. This is founded in 1934. It will open in 1937. In 1936, as they're setting up the Institute, Mortimer goes off on a tour of the Middle East of various archaeological sites and discovers none of them do the things that he's been doing in England. He's especially mad at an American excavation at Megiddo that is doing everything wrong and backwards. And he uh, comes back to discover that his wife has died in the hospital after a minor operation on her toe in 1936. So that is something of a uh, facer to him. He was not a particularly good husband as husbands go. He was a big time philanderer. He was a philanderer uh, often with his students mm-hmm. so it's a double uh, no-no so yes. he goes on to more adventures and uh, becomes big and famous as an archaeologist but let's now swerve because we're we've just come to sort of the end of the period where the wheelers intersect with trail of cthulhu which is mm-hmm. probably the, the point where you're going to want to have them be characters in your game mm-hmm. and if that happens uh, you can also have a little extra cameo from J.R.R. Tolkien, which is the other thing that Steve uh, wanted us to uh, talk about. And so this is, I guess, we're sort of on the cusp of Call of Cthulhu, moving into Trail of Cthulhu, because this is 28, 29. But uh, guess who the Wheelers go to when they need to learn stuff about Nodens? Oh, we already said it was was, Tolkien. You you, you sort of spoiled that. Yes, they are uh, doing a systematic dig at Lydney Park, which had been excavated in the 1870s in the old Victorian dig everything up any which way and write stuff down fashion. This is in the Severn Valley, like I say, right across the river from Wales. And it is the site of a temple of Nodens. And in fact, it is the only temple of Nodens that has ever been dug up. And they find amongst the various antiquities, um, and I'm not sure whether this was found earlier in the 1870s one and they gave it context or they dug up a whole new one. I'm inclined to think the previous, but there's a lead curse tablet amongst the inscriptions that calls on Nodens to permit no good health to a man named Sinicianus, who apparently stole a ring from the petitioner who was asking Nodens, this guy stole my ring. Uh, my name is Sylvanius, by the way, Nodens. I know that we barely know each other. Long time, first time. And Wheeler believes that the ring might be the gold ring of vine imprinted with an image of Venus and inscribed Senisiane vivas in day, meaning Senisianus lives in God, right? So Senisianus is maybe a Christian and he thinks, Sylvanius, you're a Nodens worshiping pagan. I'm going to bonk you on the head and take your gold ring and have it re-engraved to take the curse of that Venus image off it. 
And this ring was discovered in Hampshire, so a good ways across England. Uh, in 1785, it belongs to the fam- the Shute family, and they keep uh, the vine as their house in Basingstoke. And uh, that's your sort of country house in case you want to have occult murders over this ring for some reason. This would be where they would break out. But anyway, well, the reason would be Noden's is finally getting around to it. Yes, he because he's just had his time you know, means nothing to Noden, so he's sending his minions or you know just possessing people his night gaunts yeah yeah and it may be that the wheelers in their careful systematic way uncovered the the magic rock the way that you would worship at lydney park is you would lie down with your head on a magic rock and nodens would come to you in a dream and he would you know fix what else you whatever it happened to be so they invite tolkien to opine on the name nodens which as i say is not attested except there and one other spot in england Tolkien at this time is professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford, and he writes a paper, which isn't published until 1932, so very helpful, Professor Tolkien, that it's well, likely... he's getting it into trail time. He yes. said, no, it'll be Call of Cthulhu if I publish it right away. Let's right. wait until 32. Let's wait, let's wait let's until do Ken... A, let's do the gumshoe boys of Ken's Peter. book. So it's uh, cognate, probably, with the Welsh Nud, or Lud, who Tolkien equates... I think maybe a little spuriously with King Lear and even more likely with the Irish Nuatha, the great uh, Nuatha Ergetlam, the God of the silver hand. And then realizing that there is no Nuatha verb in the Celtic corpus, except for, you know, cognates of the name because Nuatha is a big name. And so people are lots of like beloved of Nuatha names, but that doesn't count. So he's trying to figure out what does the name mean? And he speculates that it is cognate with the Gothic verb, Ganutan, which means to hunt, to catch, or to ensnare, which is why Notens, who, by the way, has lots of dogs in his temple, depictions of dogs, little statues of dogs, is recast as a god of hunters after the 30s when in the Arthur Mackin and H.P. Lovecraft time, he is the god of the abyss, because that is what is on uh, his various inscriptions in Lydney Park, is that he's the god of the abyss. And the question is, is it the abyss of the sea? Is he a fisherman god? Is it the abyss of darkness? And he's sort of a storm god? We don't really know what his abyssness relates to at Lydney Park, because again, very little evidence. But Tolkien has given us this notion of Nodens as the hunter, which, given that he's got night gaunts as his coursing hounds and uh, exists to make life annoying for Nerlathotep, maybe it's not a not a bad stab in the dark for our professor. Although, of course, once you've got a gold ring, a silver hand, or Silmaril, as it is often called, you get a lot of foundational Tolkien goodness, which you can build out into a a Trail of Cthulhu shape, if you wish. And that right. is great good fun, because what are the Nazgul going to turn out to be? Are they the good old night gaunts, or are they something worse? Are they a hunting horror? Is the day that uh, Sinisianus worshipped, is that our god, or is it just the god, a scary god, a Nyarlathotepi god, perhaps? Who can say? Right. So you can rescue Tolkien from Nyarlathotep, who he is annoyed by uh, awakening uh, Nodens, or if you pre-annoyed Nyarlathotep, you can go to Professor Tolkien and, of course, the Wheelers for assistance. Uh, so let's just cap off the rest of his career. As you mentioned earlier, uh, Wheeler served in World War One, had a horrible time there, uh, like Tolkien did, of course. However, he is really uh, ready to fight Hitler and the, the Germans. He's been itching to get back into the fight ever since Munich 
And uh, he very enthusiastically becomes a, uh, finally, a, he rises to the rank of brigadier in World War II as an artillery commander. Yeah, he commands an anti-aircraft unit that fights, and they come to him, the government of India comes to him and says, we would like you to be the director of the Archaeological Survey of India, which you will note there is not a war going on in. And he says, let's just invade Italy first. Let me just invade Italy, then I'll go to India. So, you know, he, he may be a, a moral sewer as far as his marriage is concerned, but by golly, he, he's, he's not a coward. He doesn't funk it. Um, so he does eventually go off to India in 1944, maybe takes credit for some research of some local scholars, maybe just takes their research and puts it in a place where British and uh, world audiences can see it. Who can say he remarries another woman who he immediately starts cheating on and treating terribly because really she cheats on him too. So yeah, well uh, <laughs> at this point, this you're, you're going in with your eyes open. I assume. Yes. This is just English people of the period. Right. now. After 48, he splits his uh, life briefly between uh, being the archeological advisor to Pakistan. Right. And he's present during the partition and takes some risk to uh, protect his Muslim staff members and, mm -hmm. and get them out of a majority uh, Hindu city safely. So he's still, risking his uh, skin for others even at that point mm -hmm. he does an excavation of mohenjo-daro not the full i mean there still isn't a full-on excavation of mohenjo-daro but he sort of puts it on on the, on the map for people and then the government of pakistan says we don't actually need a british guy around that's sort of the point of being pakistan off you go uh, he goes back to britain and becomes a beloved tv archaeologist and he's on a whole bunch of different programs one There's where one they called animal vegetable and mineral yeah where they bring uh, where you the, the the panel tries to figure out what an object is mm -hmm. it is alleged that he researched ahead of time which objects were being taken off display in museums. <laughs> Uses contact thusly. But he hosts a bunch of different programs, becomes a, you know, beloved cultural figure, and eventually, as happens to us all, he dies in 1976 of a stroke in his case. Right. And before he does that, he writes a whole bunch of popular books as well. Right. Yeah, some of which I own, in fact. Rome Beyond the Frontiers is basically inspired by a find that he makes question mark in India of a Roman shipping port on the Southern Indian coast where the Romans came and uh, had a, a little, you know, not an embassy, not a factory, but a place, a trading post. You would say if they weren't, you know, next to a larger, even more impressive empire than theirs. Right. And, and he really only starts to fail in the seventies, meaning that in the sixties in fall of Delta green, he's still he peppery still and vibrant. Yeah. So I think that indeed is a very uh, game-worthy life that you can use to uh, fit uh, him and uh, early in the 30s, his wife Tessa, into all sorts of occult adventure uh, storylines. And then on that note, I think uh, we're going to move from the world of archaeology to the world of mythology. So just a hop and a skip and a jump, just like crossing the Severn River, except instead of the Severn River, it's, it's a commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through. Keep this podcast well-researched and well-located alongside such laid-back but heroic Patreon backers as Drew Clary, Ben Vincent, Chad Ward, Dan Simons, and Michael Bowman. The statues of the gods on plinths, the sacrifices sizzling on the altar, the immense squabbles over Joseph Campbell being a fathead welcome us into the mythology hut. <laughs> Just getting one more zing in, I see. One more elbow shot in on the the boy. In the Mythology Hut, beloved Patreon backer Paul Douglas writes to ask, In Persepolis, Marjan Satrapi makes an offhand reference to the Arthurian cycle having originated in Iran, which is a thing I had not encountered before. As noted mythocognoscenti, are you able to shed further light on this unconventional theory? Question mark. Right. And so this is one of those questions of, is there a little diffusion? It's certainly the Arthurian myth cycles uh, certainly post-date things going on in Iran. So it certainly makes sense that, uh, and the ancient world was all connected. As we mentioned just in the last segment, mm -hmm. the Romans were in England and they uh, their existence there is uh, pivotal to the development of the Arthurian legend, and they brought all sorts of other people with them to mostly to clobber the people who live there. And so it it's in, makes entire sense that bits and pieces of different legends could have made their way into the vast stew pot of oral lore that then Geoffrey of Monmouth and then Mallory codified. It's so it's not inherently nutty to think that some elements of Iranian mythology uh, made their way transformed into the Arthurian cycle. Uh, but it just depends on how far you want to stretch things. Because, for example, there's a claim that the uh, legendary hero Batraz was essentially Arthur. And I think that we can agree, Ken, that this is true, because as you know from Arthurian legend, just like Batraz, that the birth of Arthur happened when Arthur's father was arguing with another chieftain and the other chieftain made fun of Uther's wife, wife, who had turned into a frog. And therefore, as we know from Arthurian mythology, she got mad and left, but not before spitting eggs into Uther's Arthur's back. dad's back. Yep. And that's, and they sort of bubbled up and turned super hot. And then Arthur jumped out of his shoulder and he was so hot that he had to be tossed into the sea. That's straight right out. Yeah, that's that's basically straight out of Mallory. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't you can't beat that. Um, or the fact that he immediately goes on a tear and starts murdering all the other knights and heroes in Britain. That's again right out of the yeah. stories. Exactly the whole basic exactly. theme of the Arthur legend. Yeah, right that he's uh, basically seen as the power of hot iron embodied. I mean, the the, the parallels are endless. In fact, they are, they, they end. They, they end at Batraz's magic sword, which he throws away on his death into the Black Sea. And people are, are, are saying, 
Oh, no, we threw the sword away into the Black Sea. Everything's cool, Batraz. And he says, you liars, I'm still alive. The only way I can die is if this sword is quenched in the Black Sea. And so they have to go back and do it again, and then he dies. And that's the end of the story of Batraz. And the people who read that story in the 1920s, when they were collecting all of these legends, the uh, generally called Nart legends of the Ossetians, which is a tribe in the Caucasus Mountains, north of Iran, they think, goodness, that throwing the sword away and being told that, no, we threw it in that lake. And then the hero saying, you did not either stop lying. That seems very familiar. That sounds like the death of Arthur. And so this notion that this little lore nugget is the core of the Arthur and Bedivere throwaway Excalibur sequence at the end of the Mort is, well, it's suggestive, I guess, is is what happens. And it did, in fact, suggest this to people off and on. Finally, uh, a fellow uh, named uh, C. Scott Littleton, who is an anthropologist, a scholar of mythology at UCLA, a, a student of Dumezil, the, the great scholar of Indo-European mythology. And he starts to assemble little facts. And among them, he has Batraz, as we've discussed, and his magic sword. He has the fact that the Ossetians, whose hero Batraz is, are maybe descended from the Alon tribe, who may have been the same as the Iazages tribe. And it's true that the Ossetians name for themselves is Yazi, so not outside the realm of possibility. So the Ossetians are Iranian, the Alans were Iranian, the Yazigis were Iranian. It's also true, oh goodness, that the Iazages were beaten like a drum by Marcus Aurelius and uh, taken from Pannonia and Dacia, where they were living, and posted in northern Britain in 175 AD, where, in theory, they could make no more trouble for Rome, but would, in fact, be making trouble for the Picts across uh, Hadrian's Wall. And we see little Sarmatian gravestones, and we see Sarmatian warriors carved on rocks near Hadrian's Wall, so we know that they were there. And, in fact... These Iazigis, these Sarmatians, are depicted as using windsock banners, which is where most vexillologists speculate the Romans got the dragon banner from, was their foes, the uh, Elans, the Iazigis, the Sarmatians, who, you know, would paint the windsock red and put eyes on the front of it and say, it's a dragon, ah! And then... Yes, because wind socks are crucial to their Arthurian legend. Right, right. Well, he's Pendragon, right? He's under the dragon. There we are. Look at that. Also, uh, speaking of facts tumbling into place, also posted in Northern Britain, a fellow named Lucius Artorius Castus, who was a prefectus legionis for the legion that was stationed at York. So maybe he knew some Eosages. Now, the uh, Killjoys, Robin, fun ruiners, point out that there is... Not a minimum of proof or even evidence or anything that Artorius ever commanded so much as one Iazige, much less a bunch of them. He was not a cavalry commander. He was a legion prefect. He did. Never seen with a windsock. May or may not have ever been seen with a windsock. He was basically the quartermaster. He was the quartermaster general of, of the Roman legionary post at Iboricum. At one point, he does lead some soldiers on a overseas mission somewhere, just like King Arthur. But what shape was his table? Maybe he had a round table. That's possible. We could have had. Could have had. We don't know. So, C. Scott Littleton is assembling all of these in his a little pile. And uh, in 1993, he meets another scholar named Linda Malcor. And she says, what if Lancelot is also Batraz? 
Huh? He's unbeatable. And he does, in fact, go nuts and kill a bunch of knights, just like Batraz. And he also has a mom who lives in a lake, just like a frog lady. Well, she's not a frog, but she's a French lady. So it's roughly the same thing. And she says that perhaps his name comes from the little outpost of the Alans in Lot in southwestern France. And thus he's known as Alans a lot. And you are saying she does not make that argument with a straight face. And I'm saying, oh, yes, she does. <laughs> it becomes a book from Scythia to Camelot, which I very much recommend as a banger of a read. She then suggests that uh, Riothamus, who led a bunch of uh, Roman soldiers into France, into Gaul, uh, met up with these Alans. And that's where the Batra's Lancelot and the Batra's Arthur legend collided. And it is from that chunk of Gaul that the uh, Arthurian legends uh, begin. And, and bits and pieces of this make it at least into the production design and DVD commentary of the terrible Anton Fuqua King Arthur movie. Yes. Uh, she, I believe uh, either Linda Malcor or C. Scott Littleton are the uh, historical advisor to the film. Right. Because Fuqua hated the Arthurian myths and, you know, the whole idea that Lancelot would get with Arthur's what that, that, that couldn't happen. That's stupid. Let's let's have them be Scythians instead. Mm -hmm. There is another possible strain uh, that Marjan Satrapi may be thinking of, and this is that there is a mythical king. There are a lot of mythical kings in Iranian legend, but there's one guy named Kai Khosrau who has a bunch of heroic companions. He's raised by a wise man in the wilds, the figure Piran. He has a magic cup. The Cup of Jamshid, also called the Nart Mong, the Cup of Heroes or Cup of Knights. So maybe if you've got a bunch of Iranian legends being foamed into the Arthurian mix, maybe a copy of the Shanama is uh, responsible. The Shanama is written down circa 1000 AD, maybe a little earlier. It's based on an earlier now lost work, which it probably did not get into medieval Europe, but certainly the Shanama does to an extent. And it's not impossible. If we remember, Jeffrey of Monmouth says, where did I get all this cool information? I got it from a magic book, and I'm not going to tell you where I got it from. And so maybe one of the magic books that he consults is some monastic copy of some part of the Shanama. And that's where he sort of picks up bits of Kai Khosrau. Now, that said, Merlin and a magic cauldron and a bunch of heroic companions are bog standard bits of Welsh legend. So you don't necessarily have to go all the way to Iran to figure it out. And, and of course, that's the way that diffusion actually works is not that things get moved whole cloth from one culture to another with a few little details change, unless you're looking at, you know, Merlin in Brittany and Merlin in England. And that's clearly a case of that, of different, slightly different related cultures, slightly changing the stories. But more often it's like, Oh, let's steal a little bit of this idea and a little bit of that idea, much like tabletop game designers do when coming up with monsters and cool things and, and ideas. And so it's perfectly credible that little bits and pieces and images move from one myth to another. I think the cup becoming the grail is a big time stretch since mm -hmm. that is so crucial to the Christian mythology of the Arthur legend. I think, you know, there might have been an image closer to home that that mm -hmm. might have been based on. But yeah, there is a school of, of grail scholarship. And I love saying that, by the way, um, <laughs> of those two words next to each other, that says that even the Welsh cauldron of the dead 
uh, the, the Welsh magic cauldron that an early Arthur poem involves may be a blind and that Credian, who comes up with the grail, remember, is only thinking of the cup of, of sacrifice at the Last Supper. And it was a big coincidence. And there was no magic cauldron in his mind at all. He's just thinking of of the cup of sacrifice. And then maybe the guy writes Parsifal, Wolfram of Eschenbach, is a little more aware of Welsh legendary because he's also got the the Percival story. And so he, I mean, and that's a straight port from, from Welsh legend. And so maybe that's how it jumps in and we get it something that feels a little more like the, the, the cauldron of Onwen. But, uh, anyway, uh, we are overdetermined when we're looking for magic cups, bowls, or cauldrons, I think, in Indo European lore, in much the same way that you're talking about, where, you know, you've got a, a bunch of knights, you've got a weird wizard. What's missing? Oh, a magic cup. And off we go. Well, speaking of off we go, I think it's time for us to go off of this segment. And on to another one. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepy cobweb stairs, heading on up to the uh, landing where we wave at the smiling portrait of the magical fire salamander. And then we head on in to, oh, wait a minute, the parlor of the consulting occultist looks all sort of moderny and white and gallery-like because I think we've got a co-production between the consulting occultist and Culture Hut because we're going to look at the Hexen 2.0 Tarot. Uh, which is by the contemporary artist uh, Suzanne Treister, who's very much still active and doing things. And as we will later discover, I think turns out to be, if this podcast could give out artists and residency jobs to contemporary artists, it would give them to Suzanne Treister because she's in half of our huts already. So this is a very 60s-looking tarot deck, but it was actually uh, created uh, later, looking back on the the 60s as as a... uh, looking at the same kind of lore that we look at in this show and that features in Fall of Delta Green. Yeah. I discovered Suzanne Treister when I found her book, Hexen 2039, which was an artistic interpretation of mind control conspiracy theory. And it, because she is an artist and not a desperate, uh, well, I guess you can also be a desperate weirdo and an artist, but she's an artist first. Yeah, she's she's knowingly playing with all this right. stuff, not trying to convince you that it happened. And and her Hexen 2039 is a magical text. It is 
beautifully full of all manner of things. There's like this, the score of Fantasia is, is called out. There's lots of, of, of new things mixed into the good old mind control stew. And it was a real eye opener to me. And I was very excited to find that a, a real honest to God, you know, fancy artist had, you know, doubled her toe in my elliptomy hut and produced such a wonderful book. And so I, I bought this, I think, probably in um, uh, Fields Books in San Francisco way back in the olden days and was a big, you know, clasped her to my metaphorical bosom. And then, Robin, you and I were at the big uh, 60s display exhibit, I guess, at the was it British Museum it was where it was or the Tate. Where did we go? It was the British Museum. British Museum. At the British Museum. And what do we see but another Hexen. Hexen 2.0 and the Tarot. And nothing would do me but that I would buy the Hexen Tarot and carry it away with me. And indeed I did. And it is sitting right here by the computer where we record as we speak. Right. And you can basically... Uh, I guess it's basically another Nerd Trope deck as well as a Tarot deck. You can yeah. draw any card from this. And it could either be a segment on this show that we have done or, or are going to do. So there's like a card that there's an ARPANET card and it mentions the SRI, which as we keep mentioning is the late 60s occult internet connection. And uh, she has that uh, nailed along with so many other things. You want to just sort of draw a couple more random cards and describe them? Yeah. Let's see. Um the uh, Six of Cups or Six of Chalices, as it is called, is dream sharing, thought based networks. Screenless ultrasonic headbands coupled into the right side of the brain, network-enabled telepathy, dreams recorded ultrasonically from the brain can be shared online. And the suit of chalices is sort of a utopian pie-in-the-sky type suit, which is why Rousseau is in it. Yeah, these are sort of chatty, text-filled cards with lots of things. Let's see, pentacles. Pentacles is the bad people trying to run everything and commercialize it. And in an interesting take, I think because she is uh, British, the six of pentacles is Robert Oppenheimer. And so you think, well, that's, you know, he's, he's a trouble guy. But then the seven of pentacles is the whole earth catalog. And we're used to thinking of them as just harmless hippies. But of course, in, you know, anti-capitalist uh, British art circles, I'm sure their thought is awful because they have a catalog and you buy things. <laughs> it says catalog right in it. What could be worse? So you could very easily take this deck and use it as a plot hook generator for This Is Normal Now, for Fall of Delta Green, for mm. the Esoterrorists, Unknown Armies. You could absolutely use this not just as a game artifact, but as a part of your a mechanical process of deriving inspiration. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're describing cards and, and there'll be a, a link in the show notes. Right. So you can look at so, the cards so let's yourselves move on from describing cards to like right. looking at the rest of her very cartus adjacent career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does she have a gaming hut project? She does called fictional video game stills of which she did, she did in 91 and 92. And she basically used the then very simple interface of uh, sort of Amiga games to create other sort of plaques and text images. And they're very much like the cards. A lot of these things are just new, different packages for her almost sort of William Blakeian combination of text and imagery and metaphysics. There's a very strong Blake vibe to her art. Um, She has another sculptural piece that's like three big units called the Spaceships of Bordeaux, which consist of a classic flying saucer UFO in a pond or on stilts over a pond, I guess. There's an 
observatory slash science fiction library. And there's a sort of a pavilion with a, a sort of a, a, a guidestones uh, vibe to it, but made by a contemporary artist and not a crackpot. She was the artist in residence at CERN in 2018, which happens when you receive the Collide Award. Mm-hmm. And What uh, better award could there be, by the way? Exactly. That's so, uh, you know, European funding. Yay. So it consists of a uh, video and then prints as well. But the it's the uh, work that she created there. It's called the Holographic Universe Theory of Art History. And basically, the video is different images from art history being flashed in front of your eyes as fast as the particles get sent to smash into other particles at CERN. So uh, it's, of course, there's a deliberately fictional crackpot theory behind that. And that that sort of delves into the whole, we're living in a hologram Mm -hmm. uh, conspiracy theory as well. Yeah. And the uh, Hexen 2039 was written by one of her aliases, Rosalind Brodsky, who is a time traveler. So she's, uh, she she's gets also to, in Time Incorporated. Yeah. She's the artist in residence at Time Incorporated. And her division of Time Inc. is known as the Institute of Militronics and Advanced Time Interventionality, which, by the way, great title. Right. So good. It doesn't mention vodka, but sounds like well, that's involved. That's, you know, you, you try doing Militronics without vodka, Robin. I'll see how far you get. It's right there in the name. It's right there in the name. Rosalind Brodsky is who wrote the Hexen 2039 because it's a thing broadcast back from the future from 2039 to tell us all about the, the mind control. Everywhere you look, there's going to be something wonderful. Yeah. Her newest project is called Survivor F which is a hallucinogenic exploration of a future reality in undetermined time and space. So all of this is drawing explicitly on science fiction imagery, on conspiracy theory, on new frontiers in the internet and consciousness. And so she is very much wending the uh, streams of contemporary art with all of the stuff that we talk about in this show and that uh, many of you have in your games. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a wonderful body of work. You know, she's who you can, you can name drop. If someone wants to know your favorite modern artist, I think that that's even a respectable answer. And uh, certainly she is the favorite modern artist of this podcast. As you say, if we had an artist in residency to be offering, we would offer it to her. Right. And you can buy the Hexen 2.0 tarot deck, I assume, still? I think so, yeah. So that that's available as a thing that people can acquire. And uh, on that note, I think it's time for us to head to a future reality. But uh, in the near future, a week from now, we'll have another one of these. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the dread prophecy of the ARPANET card by joining such prophetic backers as... Michael Kuehl, Ian Carlson, James Candelino, Dreaming Johnny, and Chris Farrell. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest horrific design. This could have been an email. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>